let's crack open the good book. We're going to go to John chapter 12 today. And so <clears throat> we're, we're on a slow march here towards the end game of what is going to happen with Jesus in his kind of, this is the end of his ministry here, uh, maybe a two to three year ministry, <clears throat> full blown, in which we're, we're leading to a conclusion. And we all know what that conclusion is. John chapter 12, I think we're going to jump in right away. And I'm going to ask for uh, uh, volunteers here. John chapter 12, verses 1. Uh, we can just go in segments here. 1 to 11. Who would like to read that for me? Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And, he, and, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned <clears throat> that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see, also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That's shocking. You read that, and you, and you think, and you stop for a moment, and you go, did I just read what I think I just read? Literally, in chapter 11, the apostle writes about how Lazarus has died. He has been dead in the grave for four days. And now, with Jesus having risen Lazarus from the dead, how many times in your life has someone dead for four days been risen to life again? Zero. Uh, it's zero. <laughs> I, I hope it's, if it's more than zero, awesome, great, I want to hear about it. But I think for most of us, this is, this is one of the greatest miracles that Jesus has ever performed. A man has come back to life, and now it's not secret. And, and that's another thing. Let's talk about this for a minute. <clears throat> Let's talk about this. What is the purpose of God's miracles? Let's list them off. To show God's glory. To show God's glory. This is the number one answer. Ding, ding, ding. This is like family feud. Right. Ding, ding, ding. This is like the 50-pointer. Show God's glory. There's more to it. There's but more it's interesting because this isn't the first time he's raised someone from the dead because mm -hmm. he raised Jairus' daughter. Yep. And is it just because Lazarus is more high profile or because he was dead for the, for the longest before mm -hmm. he was raised? Or, you know, mm -hmm. is it because it's at the end of his ministry mm -hmm. and... Now they're getting more and more annoyed. Good question. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Where, is, where is Lazarus? Where is the family of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus located? Bethany. Bethany. Here is Jerusalem. Here's my map. <clears throat> Star. Jerusalem. Here is the city walls, essentially, um, in Jesus' time. <clears throat> this is it right here. This is a cluster. There's thousands and thousands of people living here. Here's the Kidron Valley. Here is the famous Mount Olives. Mount of Olives. Bethany is right here. Bethany is about two and a half miles, about ten stadia away from Jerusalem proper. It is right next to Jerusalem. This is the heart of the region, good morning, where the Jewish elite, the Jewish high priest, and, and all the aristocracy are ruling, okay? The Orthodox Jews are all living right here. This is in the heart, <laughs> draw a big heart around it, of the Jewish leadership's turf. It's their turf. <clears throat> now, you make an excellent point that I really haven't thought of before. Jesus has raised other people from the dead, <clears throat> and it's rare. 
It doesn't happen every five minutes, at least according to the Gospels that has been recorded. And remember, I say this very famously, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. We don't know how many people Jesus raised from the dead. We don't know how many blind people he healed. We don't know how many leprous people he healed. We don't know how many um, uh, handicapped people walked. We know that there were some. But it appears as though raising people from the dead was a special thing. Why? Because I think there's two or three examples of him raising, raising people from the dead. <clears throat> this one of those, one of those few instances basically kind of triggers the end game here for Jesus and his, and his life. <clears throat> he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And what do the Jewish elite do? Now what... <laughs> 2020, your hindsight for history is 2020. You look back on history, a man has been raised from the dead. And what do the Jewish leaders, the high priests, say about that? They are so mad that this man is alive that they want to kill him again. <laughs> it's kind of shocking. Like, you're kind of like, okay, Jesus, I get it. Like, they're threatening yep. him, whatever. Or he, threat he th yeah. threatens them. But it's like Lazarus, like that's. I mean, it, it starts to look into like cold-blooded murder at that it's point. Cold you know what I mean? Dude, it's bad. It's cold-blooded. Yeah. <clears throat> How do humans react to God's miracles? Now, this is a this is an excellent question. I want to answer this one first. I want to get through this. What is the purpose of God's miracles? And we've already said to show God's glory. How do you show God's glory? And what do you notice? And maybe I'll say this, maybe because I'm leading you somewhere. When you read about the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament, one obvious fact is true. You cannot dispute that Brian Freeman, a nobody Gentile, 2,000 years later knows about it. How would a Gentile from the New World 2,000 years later know about it? It was recorded. It got recorded. <clears throat> Someone told somebody. How do you show God's glory? You tell people. It's not secret. Change their lives too. Say like, it again. You're also showing his glory through the, yeah, telling people, but also through changed lives. Like through change delta <laughs> lives. Like the guy who we read about a couple chapters ago where he was lame and you know, they called him in front of the, you know the Pharisees and the yeah. Sanhedrin or whatever and they were like questioning him and he's like look all I know is before I couldn't yes. you know or was he blind I forget yep. I'm sorry but anyway he was like all I know is before I couldn't and now yep. I can <laughs> yeah show God's glory <clears throat> folks when God answers your prayers this I, I I'll be I'll be rude about this one tell people tell people why because there's many reasons why God performs miracles, and often miracles are something that help us. You know, most of the time, the miracles that happen in the, in the Bible are not about <clears throat> some magic act. It's not about, ooh, look, I pulled a rabbit out of a hat, right? Typically, the miracles have some kind of impact on a human being in a positive way, sometimes negative, but they have an impact. Here, the purpose of God's miracles can often be to help people. I mean... Jesus, Jesus never set fire to the high priest's house. He never had a hundred uh, uh, Roman guards get swallowed up by the sea. Jesus' whole ministry, as recorded in the New Testament, was one of help and faith and healing and power. Why? To show the glory of the new kingdom of God, to help people. What other reasons does God perform miracles? Kind of sets the... <clears throat> Sets this the stage for the nature of God, like really shows who He is. Excellent. And what would you say? Who is God? Loving. Okay. Caring. Okay. <clears throat> when Jesus famously on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples are are in a boat and they have rowed out into the middle of the night. Jesus is asleep because he's been preaching all day and he's very tired. A storm comes, a, a very violent storm comes, and it threatens to destroy, swamp the boat, and kill everybody. <clears throat> what does Jesus do in that moment? 
Once he's awoken. <laughs> calms the sea. He calms the sea. He, he rebukes the storm. He, he actually yells at the storm. <laughs> but the first thing he does yes. is rebukes the disciples. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <coughs> For what? For lack of faith. Yes. Straight. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> a reason to have faith. But then he... He shows that he has a power over the natural universe. That is one of the great miracles of Jesus because it shows that he just, he's not just a great healer. He's not like a magician. He has power over the universe. There's only one being that has power over the universe, and who is that? <laughs> the one who created it. <laughs> showing the nature of God means showing his power. <clears throat> There's so many reasons why God performs miracles and why Jesus performed miracles. And, and here, too, to show God's glory when Jesus performs miracles. <clears throat> why did Jesus perform miracles? What was he proving there? That he's one with God. That Jesus has the authority to do it. And I'd say equivalence with God. He is showing, he is so connected to what God is doing, God the Father is doing. He is somehow one, and this is of course a different argument. He is co-equal with God the Father. He has the authority and the ability to do it. There are many false prophets in the first century. They couldn't raise the dead. They couldn't calm the storms. Jesus was showing all of those other guys, and they showed it in, in chapter 11. Many, many false prophets and wolves have come to you in the past, but they are wolves. They are false prophets. Why? Because I have proven to you, I've got the power to prove that I am the anointed one, the Messiah of God. What are humans' reactions often to miracles? Let's be honest. Skepticism. Yes. And rightly so. Thank you. With all the things. <coughs> Fair. The false people, yep. you know, doing the tricks. I mean, the first thing you got to think is, oh, is this for real? Yes. Well, or they think it's science. Okay. Hum human. Attributed. Uh, talents. To non-godly reasons. Maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. <clears throat> yeah. You know, scientist says, oh, well, a meteor hit the earth. Oh, okay. Maybe. What was the Jewish leadership's reactions to Jesus' miracles? Jealousy. Yes. Why does he get to do this? Fear. What's so special about him? Say it again. Fear. Oh, this Although is I don't so think they good. would probably admit that, but <laughs> oh, we, all their things are motivated by fear. Yeah. Goodness gracious, we're living in an age ruled by fear. Folks, the last two months, the whole of, of, the, of the planet Earth has been ruled by fear. It continues to be. Follow the money. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it kind of goes hand in hand with jealousy and yep. fear, for that matter. But if you look at the control of power, I'll just use Caiaphas, for example, or any of the high priests. And, you know, their power, their money, their wealth, everything mm. came from their position. And Jesus was going to completely upset their cart. And, and they were rightly, you know, when, when Caiaphas, you know, fulfilled the prophecy about saying one man's death will save many, yeah. he, he was right. I mean, even to say it in his distorted way, because the Romans were gonna, would come in and wipe them all out, and eventually they did. Mm -hmm. um, and, they, and they end up losing all their power and money and everything. It's ironical, isn't it? Yeah. I've said before, Jesus, his number one target was the, was the, was the Jewish, the corrupt Jew, Jewish ruling elite. There's nothing inherently wrong with being Jewish. In fact, the Jews are God's chosen people. What he was concerned with was the people who were trying to lead them at the time and leading them falsely, saying, you people, <laughs> what I'm saying to you is threatening you. Jesus lost his life because he threatened them. He threatened the ruling Jewish elite at the time and, and you know, rightly so, right? They did have something to lose here. 
And they weren't willing to give it up, at least not, not all of them. Some of them were. Let's, let's continue here. Any other comments well, there, about <coughs> There's, I mean, there's the other side too. We're mm -hmm. kind of hitting the, <coughs> the negative side, but there's yes. awe. Let's do that. Um, <coughs> really, was it was it Mary that said said Oh, this is not this is no surprise to me because great, you know, I expected you to do this. Did they say that he was possessed or from Satan? Some of his you're demon possessed. You're out of your mind. Exactly. <coughs> and it, it might go with the skepticism piece. Right. You know, where's that? Where's that coming from? Um, maybe I'll just call it out separately. Um, well, when he cast someone's crazy. Demons, <laughs> you know, when he casted out demons, you know, he said something about why would, hmm? why would, why would he have the authority to cast out demons if you're of Satan? Why would you do that? That was his logical argument, right? Yeah. If I'm Satan, how do I cast out Satan? <clears throat> it's, it's a house divided. The distinction between Old Testament miracles and New Testament. What do you mean by that? Well, Jesus was clearly taking the stand of love and yes. forgiveness and you know, not vengeance, not, I mean, his miracles weren't all aspects of God. Mm -hmm. um, you look at the Old Testament miracles and it involved military conquest, it involved fire burning up altars. Mm -hmm. And in not at all cases, of course, to be fair, right. there was a balance, but there was a lot more of this kind of vengeful, you know, <coughs> tough love justice miracles. I totally agree with this. But I, but yes, with Jesus' case, he doesn't. He's not exhibiting that here. It's much more of the grace, the full grace and love. He's trying to say this is the new kingdom. It's more on a personal level with Jesus than God. Kind of was an overall <clears throat> for the Jewish people. Yeah, miracle guy, or <clears throat> Jesus is <clears throat> individually. I love that. I love that. It's true. It was a personal impact that should have broad communication, right? I have healed this one person. I, it's not about saving all of the people of, of Gideon's hometown. It's not about saving all of the people of Samson's hometown. It's not about saving the whole, all of the people of Judea. It is and it isn't. For, for Jesus, he has, a very he has very specific relationships. They're one-on-one -on -one relationships, and they're close, and they're personal. I totally agree with this, Ken. And most of his... Most of those personal opportunities or occasions had to do with the person's faith. Now I say most of them because Lazarus was dead, so I can't imagine. Well, I suppose he could, I could imagine. But we <laughs> maybe he did yeah. have faith, even though he was dead. Faith of his sisters. Yeah. It is biblical that faith of others can lead to miracles for people who are not we don't know may or may not be saved. In, so that's one. The second is we know that, G, that Lazarus was very close with Mary and Martha and Jesus was, was very good friends with him. One can assume, maybe wrongly so, that he did have faith before he died, right? That's the part that's hard for me. Like, like well, I'll go ahead and die because, you know, maybe Jesus will bring me back. I mean, <laughs> is that what we're doing? <laughs> right? That's what we're here for, right? There you go. Faith of the mustard seed. I mean, Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, it can grow into a great tree. It doesn't take much. This is great stuff. A year's wages. Look, this is well known. This is, this is well covered. <clears throat> Judas. Who were Jesus' disciples? <laughs> who were Jesus' disciples? A ragtag bunch of... <laughs> and I'm talking right now. There's 12 disciples. Yeah. Ragtag. Who else? You got some fishermen. You got, some, you got a tax collector, at least one. You All got, walks of life. Yeah. <laughs> you got a thief. You have a thief. I'm going to say thieves. You have people who are willing to steal, and this is, this is well documented that Judas was skimming off the top. He cared about the money. Now, Jesus picked him. Jesus picked him. So what does that say about Judas? Tell me the honest truth. What does was, it say about he Judas? He was doing what was expected of him. Okay. That was part of the plan. It was his choice, but you're right. It was... He was chosen because, I mean, obviously, Jesus knew, God knew mm -hmm. what Judas would do. Was that his only role? Did Judas have any other redeeming qualities, do you think? And again, this kind of part of this here is our supposition. What would you assume like maybe here? Maybe he's like the 
you know, the parable of the the um, the sower, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, Judas could have been the one where the, you know, the seed fell and yeah. it grew, but then it got, you know, yeah. choked out by weeds, or you know, I don't know that he was all bad, or he, I, I don't think, think he would have lasted three years exactly with them, thing. you know, it probably would have kicked I'm, him out. I don't know. I, I'm going to say something controversial. I'm going to say. And I'm going to say it because I believe that it is true. And I may not have a lot of scriptural evidence for this. I believe, personally, my opinion, that all 12 disciples were a mix of both corrupt, bad, terrible people and, and some redeeming qualities. Now, you can't tell me that Levi, the tax collector, was the best guy that ever walked the earth. I'm sorry, you don't get to the position of being a tax collector at a crossroads of civilization, which was very lucrative. The, the highways that Levi, who becomes Matthew, is got his tax booth in, is probably one of the most lucrative there are in the whole region. Why? Because this is the, this is the super highway for everyone going from Egypt to, to the Near East to the Mediterranean had to pass through this region. Levi was probably very wealthy, and he got that way because he crawled his way to the top. <clears throat> I believe that every single person who was one of Jesus' 12 disciples was a remarkable man, both loving and caring and had a lot to offer this world, and were also corrupt. That's my opinion. Weren't all 12 sent off two by two to minister? I mean, Judas would have been one of them. Yes. And at the final Passover meal, which we will get to in in a couple of weeks, remember, the host of a dinner party has the people who are most important to him sitting by him. At, or, or in this case, reclining at a table by him, who were the two people who were sitting the closest to Jesus? And that gives you a very close clue into the relationship status. John, one was who? John and The author of this gospel was one of them. The other was? Judas. Judas Iscariot. Okay, I'm done with that part. My comment, Brian, is I think, I, I don't know either, but... Yeah. The uh, disciples, they probably were teachable that Jesus yes, came. And where the, if you pick 12 Jewish leaders, um, they weren't teachable. This is so good, Tim. This is so good. Teachable implies what kind of heart? Open. I just, I have to believe it means humble, open. This is great. Willing to do what? What were they willing to do? Listen. Say it. I said, listen. They were willing to listen. Submit. And follow. They follow. They were willing to follow. Change. Submit. This is awesome. Change. Who? <laughs> who are God's and Jesus' disciples today? Us. <laughs> we're ragtag yeah. bunch, and we're from all walks yeah. of life, and we are willing to listen and follow. Yeah, exactly. Never oh, once, never once do I read that. You know, they had some like breakfast meeting where they all got together, and Jesus said, "Okay, today we're going to go do this, and we're going to go do that." I believe that they just he got they got up in the morning and he, he took off, and they just okay, <laughs> we'll go with this guy. Probably, well, I like because that. who knows what was up for the day? If it wasn't <laughs> what's happening today, I have no idea. But they still went. I love it. I love it. Okay, good, good. We'll keep talking about these as we go through. Let's get through the scripture here. Let's go on to chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Who would like to read that for me? The next day, a great crowd who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast heard that Jesus was coming there. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet Jesus, shouting, Praise God. God bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the King of Israel. Jesus found a colt and sat on it. This was as the scripture says, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Your king is coming, sitting on the colt of a donkey. The followers of Jesus did not understand this at first, but after Jesus was raised to glory, they remembered that this had been written about him and they had done these things to him. There had been many people with Jesus when he raised Lazarus from the dead and told him to come out of the tomb. Now they were telling others about what Jesus did. Many people went out to meet Jesus because they had heard about this miracle. So the Pharisees said together, you can see that nothing is going right for us. Look, the whole world is following him. 
Bless your heart, you've got the new century version, right? That's your, your thing. It omits the, the Aramaic word here Hosanna. for praise him. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest, right? I, just, I love old stuff. I love Hosanna. I love Excelsius Deo. I like the Latin. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a geek. Hosanna. It just means something more. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is one of the great passages of the New Testament. The triumphal entry. When a, when a person like this is coming in, they're saying what? In verse 13, blessed is who? The one who comes in the name of the Lord. He who comes, comes in the, in the name, name of the Lord. Lord. <clears throat> What's the next verse? Yeah. The king of Israel. This is the big one. <laughs> what? The king of Israel. The clock. If the clock was not ticking before, <laughs> it's ticking right now. His time is ended. His time is up. It's just a matter of time. The king of Israel. Folks, look, you live, we really do live in a remarkable age. In the West, in the United States of America, say what you will about the tyranny of the last three months, we are still a free country, somewhat. You can, you can call people king. <laughs> Scott, you're my new king. Awesome, yeah. <laughs> Scott's king, woo, right? For the most part, the government doesn't have the right here for us to, to put me in jail and kill me for saying that or kill you. Back then, in the first century, oh no, you don't call people king if they're not king. What happens to you? Yes. It's the, it's the universal symbol. You're going to draw your finger across your neck? No, no, no. No, that was a joke from, from a movie. What was the movie? Guardians of the Galaxy. It's no, you're going to be dead. They're going to kill you. And they're going to kill everyone else who was, was with you. Now, I want you to remember what happens in the first century here. We are talking about, there has been about 500 years of the Jews being ruled by foreign powers at this point. First, it was the Babylonians. Well, if you really want to think of it, it's first the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Syrians, then the Egyptians, now the Romans. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of foreign powers. During that time... There are many revolts in the Jewish nation, especially in Palestine here, of the Jews revolting against the foreign powers who are trying to rule them. That never goes over well. I mean, it, it does a couple of times. Like um, during the Maccabean revolts, they temporarily win back some autonomy, but that doesn't last very long. The Jews are known for being a stubborn people who, when foreign powers come in, and try and exert their force, the Jews rebel. And, and sometimes it was subtle, and sometimes it was open guerrilla warfare. We got this guy in the first century now who marches in to Jerusalem, who we think thousands of people are lining the streets of Jerusalem right before the Passover and calling this guy king. Now remember what happens in the Passover. <clears throat> this is once a year in the spring, this is, this is one of the great, there's probably three great celebrations that the Jews have during the year. Uh, it's, it's Passover with the Feast of Weeks, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths to some, to some extent, <clears throat> with, a, with a number of other minor celebrations. The Passover is probably the biggest. During the time of the Passover, the, the population of Jerusalem would swell from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of thousands of people. Now, folks... You live in a, in a town in which there's probably, in the greater Des Moines metroplex, probably five or 600,000 people, okay? I want you to just remember how many people lived in antiquity. In the, in the first century, on the entire planet, there might have been two or 300 million people. That's the population of the United States today. Now think of that number of people spread throughout the entire planet. <clears throat> most towns, most cities, had very few people in them. A town of 10,000 people was huge. A town of 10,000 people was huge. Rome at the time might have had a million people in it. That was probably by far the biggest city on earth at that time. For a town of a few thousand people, and you live in a resort town, you grew up in a resort town, Clear Lake, Iowa. During the normal part of the year, there might be seven, 8,000 people that live there. What happens in the summer? There's 10,000. There's, so. there's people lining the streets. There's people <laughs> in their car. There's, ever, there's people that you can't walk without running into people. It's just packed full of vacationers, right? Just think of these crowded, stinking, old, gross streets of Jerusalem packed with people so, so full you can't get by, right? Now you've got thousands of people suddenly throwing their palm branches up into the air. 
laying their coats down on the ground. This man is coming in and it's like a, it's like a stadium entrance for a rock band, okay? And right above them, you know, here he's probably coming in, that star, this is probably, the temple is like somewhere right around here. Um, high, you know, the high priest, they would all kind of have their offices here. Some of them live there. Um, the, the actual aristocracy probably lived, there's like a little hill here, a little valley. Some of the rich apartments for the, uh, for the wealthy priests and the aristocracy would be somewhere in this area right here. Here comes this guy with thousands of people coming right up their lane. What happens? We've lost the people. It's We've lost it. Something. We've lost it. The whole world is following him. The whole world is following it? him. And it's this and it's not one of them either. Remember, this isn't some well-educated Judean who was a, a member of the Sanhedrin. This is some Galilean fisherman who never got an education, who was poor. Who the blank is this guy? Right? Didn't even have a place to lay his head. Homeless. Some wanderer. He's a wandering nomad, and these people by the thousands are following him. And so now it's not just he's a threat to our state, he's a threat to our existence. We hate him because he's poor. He's not one of us. Who the heck is this guy? We hate him. He comes in on a donkey. Now, a donkey might to you not seem like the most glorious of animals. But it turns out in antiquity, this was a sign of kingship. Why? Because a king, when marching into the town or city that he had conquered, wanted to seem like a humble servant, right? So the people he didn't kill <laughs> were, were not carted off as slaves. He wanted to show that he was a benevolent dictator. So he would come in on a donkey to show his humility, um, to show his humbleness, to show his glory. He didn't have to come in on a giant horse. Let's read Zechariah. Nine, nine. Who can read that for me? Okay. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's not just a donkey. It's, it's, it's like a, you know, a young donkey, right? Um, this is Zechariah. This is a prophet who's speaking hundreds of years earlier um, in the post-exilic period. When the Jews are finally getting to come back to, to Judea. And, and, and Zechariah foresees a time when their king, their king of Israel will return. The Messiah will return on a donkey, showing that he is actually the king. Now, how many of, and I'll say the Pharisees of this period, knew the scripture of Zechariah? All of the Pharisees knew it. Now, we've talked about this. The Sadducees rejected the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. But how many of them knew of that passage? <laughs> All of them. And if they didn't, I'm sure the Pharisees told them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they reminded them of it. This is the biggest... Folks, I can't tell you how big of a threat this is. Now remember, at the period, again, I've said this over and over again, the model of the Messiah of a first century Jew was who? A warrior, right? Or someone who would come lead the nation. Warrior. Well, he was going to be King David, you know, basically. King. Davidic king. Yep. Take over you know, beat the Romans. <clears throat> they will destroy, they will literally destroy enemies of God. It's not all bad. What else did they see the Messiah as? One of them, Jew. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, of course. Soteria, it's Greek. It, it, there's a church named Soteria. What does that mean? Salvation. He was a savior. They were looking for a savior. A ruler, a warrior, a Davidic king. This guy starts marching into their town on their turf 
and he's claiming that he's the Messiah, and all of his believers say he's the Messiah, what do the Jewish elite think is about to happen next? Probably take them down or something. If this guy, whether this guy is or isn't the real Messiah, They're all <laughs> blank is yeah. about to. Whether it's Rome destroying or whether it's him destroying, they get destroyed. Someone's getting destroyed here, <laughs> right? This is someone's getting destroyed. They're obviously outnumbered at this point. Oh my everybody's, gosh! Everybody's joining his side. How interesting! And when you say at this moment, you couldn't be more right about that, my friend. At this moment, on this day, a week before, so this is probably the Sunday. Um, actually, let's talk about that real quick. Six days before the Passover, which would have been um, that Friday evening, that would have been Saturday. So Jesus is anointed with his funeral perfume on the Saturday before the Passover, which means the next day the triumphal entry happens on Sunday, right? And we celebrate that today as Palm Sunday. <clears throat> so it's, it's basically one week before his resurrection. All hell's about to break loose, guys. It's interesting how John describes Jesus getting the donkey differently than the synoptic gospel. Okay, so. describe that. Well, the other Gospels tell of Jesus giving instructions, yep. and you'll find a young colt tied to so-and-so, and the guy asks, tell him the master needs it, you know, some version of that, whereas John just says, Jesus found a donkey. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Truth is a puzzle. If you think of the different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and to some degree, then there's all this other that we don't know. We're all piecing it together. Jesus knew about it. He found it. But remember, Jesus knew where this donkey was going to be. And then synoptics, he directs his disciples to go and get it because he knows already where it is. Um, in fact, it may have been that Jesus has already worked out <laughs> getting this, this donkey previously. He found this donkey previously. And now he's just directing them to go and get it. So is that what you're getting at? or Just a different yeah. angle. Yeah. When I said the thing about you were so right on about at this moment, there's thousands of people. Give it a week, and then how many people are on his side? Yeah. Isn't it amazing? The minute they figured out he wasn't the military <coughs> he wasn't going to overthrow Rome, they were off him. I mean, we're done Peter, with him. Peter chops off the ear of the servant, mm -hmm. and then Jesus, he, he's like, no, like that's not going to happen. And they heals the ear, and then they're all like, wait a minute. This is We're so not deep. supposed to kill people? This is so deep. And you know what? I, sometimes the obvious escapes me. And this is such a revelation moment for me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when, when Peter pulls his sword, and we'll, you know, this will happen in, in, in a little bit here. He pulls the sword. He thinks it's on. Even Peter probably thinks, this is the moment I've been waiting for this. <laughs> Let's go. Woo! Slice. And then crickets. <laughs> Ear. <laughs> and Jesus is like, this is, not, this is not the way it's going to be, Peter. How much emptiness did Peter feel at that moment? How much of his life just drained right out of him? This is a revelation moment for me, because I haven't really thought of it that way. Well, I think a lot of, you know, we read the Bible even ourselves mm -hmm. like sometimes we read passages that are troublesome to us and we kind of just glaze over them because we're like oh well I'm not you know I don't really want to think about that or whatever and I'm sure that they were the same way with the Messiah like they read the parts where it says yeah. I'm going to rescue Jerusalem and I'm going to do this and then the other parts where it said like like a lamb being led to the slaughter he was silent right mm -hmm. they didn't like kind of gloss over that because they're like I don't really know what mm -hmm. that means and that doesn't really fit with what I think. And so, you know, when you're, then sometimes when you read the Bible, like God faces you with like your, yes. your misconceptions or the things that you don't want to think about. And like that moment for Peter was right then. He was like, wait a minute. Let's hope no one has to lose an ear for that now. <laughs> uh, but no, I had always looked at this like, you know, Peter's a hothead. He's probably like me. He's probably like the Apostle Paul. He's like, don't you touch him, you know? But I think this is it. I think he was ready for the war, and it was a spark. He was waiting for a spark, and all the life went out of him when, he, when that happened. Je Paul's like, Jesus is like, no, this is not the way it's going to be. 
I'm not here to cause a war. I'm not here to start a war. I'm here to heal the world, and I'm going to die for it. Now, let's be honest. He has been predicting his death, and for the next week, he will predict his death. But maybe, like you said, they're putting that off. Maybe he's like, I'm going to go out with glory, but then God will raise me from the dead. Some people thought that. The Messiah would die. He would be a human who would then be raised back to life, but a human. He wouldn't be what Jesus, we know Jesus to be today. What else? What else do you take from this? All right, let's move on. Got a little bit more. Let's do verses 20, and let's read to 36. Who would like to read that for me? Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, uh, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Keep going. I don't remember. Yeah, keep going. Okay. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. What do you take from... So first let's talk. Why, why would the word Greeks be here? <clears throat> does anyone know? What does that mean? Why is it significant? What that mean? Well, I mean, there's some gen- they're Gentiles, basically. Greeks is the same word for non-Jews, right? Mm-hmm. No? no? Okay. That's Gentiles. Um, well, no. In this case, this does not mean Gentiles. Okay. This is specific. Well, they're Greek proselytes. So they'd be <clears throat> Jews who were from Greece. Visiting Jerusalem for the Passover. That is one. That is one kind here. Um, this is another thing about. Look, I, I go on and on about history. Some of you like it. Some of you hate it. This is really important. Ever since Alexander the Great took over and conquered Palestine, Alexander wanted to spread the ideals of Greek culture. If if you say in the first century you're Greek, that didn't mean an ethnic thing. It didn't have anything to do from where you were from. It didn't mean you were from the region that we today call Greece. It meant that you adhered to the ideals of Greek society and culture. You're educated as a Greek. The, the, The most important term is that you read or understood Greek or spoke it. That was number one. Number two was you followed a Greek lifestyle. You were either educated as a Greek, you were educated in the philosophy of the Greeks, I mean, if that was if you were wealthy, <clears throat> you participated in athletic events in the nude, you served or worshipped Greek gods. <clears throat> the pantheon of Greek gods, <clears throat> Zeus, Aphrodite, um, uh, Athena, so on and so forth. Um, for the Jewish people, what ended up happening around 300 BC was a huge split in the Jewish nation. Now, we've talked in the past about the split, the physical split of the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This was a different, this was a a philosophical split. There were Hellenized Jews. They were liberal. 
They spoke Greek. The Greek version of the Old Testament that almost all of the New Testament writers quote is the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. <clears throat> then there were Orthodox Jews. They were very conservative. You can say that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, which are probably the three groups of Jews we knew about in the first century, they were all Orthodox. <clears throat> they either knew or wrote in Hebrew. They believed in the Holy Scriptures as canon, as meaning these are the words that help us to know what truth is. <clears throat> Most of the Orthodox Jews lived in the region of Judea at this time, around Jerusalem. The Hellenized Jews, who were liberal, they were okay with exercising in the nude. They were okay with visiting a pagan temple from time to time. They were okay with, and they spoke Greek, or wrote in Greek, <clears throat> 80% of all of the monuments and tombs of the first century in, in Palestine are written in Greek. Just keep that in mind. What does that say about the population of the time? How much friction was there between these two groups? None, none at all. I love you. King, you're so right. They got along, you know, great stuff. Kumbaya, my yes. lord. They, they all had picnics and it was, it was all just happy singing. Yes. And, and when one group did something, the other group said, oh, that's fine. We won't say anything about it. I love it. you. <laughs> they were very tolerant mm -hmm. of each very other. <laughs> they were the epitome of tolerance. Coexist. Love it. I love it. That's, that's it. They all had the bumper sticker, the coexist yes. bumper sticker. The problem was, <clears throat> to some degree, these guys, you know, they tolerated these guys. These guys hated these guys. They hated them. Of course, the conservative Orthodox Jews said, you guys, all, everything you do is wrong, right? So when the author of the Gospel of John says <clears throat> there were Greeks <laughs> that came to him, let's see, let me find it again. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the feast. They went to worship at the feast because they were, they were Hellenized Jews. They went to worship. But they stood out like a sore thumb. Look, folks, this is, again, another group of people to hate, right? <coughs> and they came to Philip. They came they to Philip. They didn't come to Andrew first. They didn't come to John. Yep. They came to Philip because yep. he was from Bethsaida, which is in the northern part, yep. which would border that same area where these mm -hmm. Hellenized Jews would be from. I love it. So they'd yep. probably just make the assumption, hey, he's kind of one of us. Well, Philippos. That's a Greek name. Philippos is a Greek name. We can't, we can't go right up to Jesus, but we'll talk to one of our guys and this see if he can get us in there. I love it. So that's, I just wanted to make that point here. That, <laughs> And what does Jesus say? This is a great analogy, folks. This is a great analogy. His analogy is about this kernel, a seed. Now, uh, you know, in, a, in a botanical sense, a seed doesn't die <laughs> when you plant it. But it could, it could very well, you know, philosophically, it seems like it dies. You take something that looks dead, right? You, you bury it in the ground. What do you bury in the ground usually? Dead things. Dead things. Now, to some degree, the seed does die. If you think the seed coat degrades, the, um, the sugar stores and starch stores of the seed are used up, and then the growing embryo plant comes to life. What comes back out of the ground? Does it look like a seed? New life. No, it looks nothing like a seed. It's new life. It's growing. It's alive. Folks, this, there is no better parallel for, for you as a, as a born-again Christian to think of this analogy that you were once the seed who was buried <laughs> and your old life is gone. It's gone. This, this gross little thing, you buried in the ground, right? And up from it, I hope, folks, I hope, is this great life. This is an excellent analogy. And what does a very healthy plant produce more of? More seeds. More seeds. And how many lots, seeds? Lots of seeds. Gosh, many seeds, many, not pollen, seeds. <laughs> Folks, this is, look, if there's one analogy that I think is the greatest parable or analogy of all in the, in the New Testament, it's the, if this analogy here. You die to Christ, you give up your old ways, you're dead, and you have new life. And the only way that you can get that new life is through who? Jesus. 
Jesus, time and again, makes these great analogies with the sowing of seed, spero. Spero is one of the most common verb, Greek verbs in the whole Greek New Testament. Why? Because it is used time and again by Jesus to illustrate this principle. I am trying to sow seed, which is, in one way, the word of God. In another way, new life. Some of the seed will fall on a rocky path and die. There's just nothing you can do about it. It's a bell curve. Some of the seed, no matter what you do, some of the people will never accept the word of God. They will reject it. It's just truth. Some people will, it falls on fertile ground and immediately takes root and grows and is healthy and produces new fruit. And then for the rest of us, for the rest of us, it's somewhere in the middle. But this great analogy over and again, over again, you have died to Christ, you have been born again, you are alive, and you can only be alive through the Holy Spirit, the gift that Jesus has given to you to be alive. But he's predicting his death. Now, it looks, again, Jesus is great. He always has like three or four meanings for everything that he says, right? This applies to us. Guess who also applies to? You. This is, he is the archetype for this whole thing. Jesus is the first seed that will go in the ground. He is the first man who will be risen to a new life. He is, he is the firstborn of all creation. The New Testament calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Well, firstborn implies what? You're the first. First of many more. I hope and pray that all of you are the many more. <laughs> that you have accepted what Jesus did first for you. He put down his life. Now, in many cases, we are so blessed. <clears throat> in some ways, most Christians who have ever walked or will walk the earth will not give their physical life <clears throat> for the gospel. You will not be crucified on a cross. You will not be boiled in oil. <clears throat> However, if you are, and I believe this, and this is biblical, if you are a true believer in Jesus, you will give your spiritual life to him. You will give up your life in some way to be born again and to produce fruit. <clears throat> now, that may be sacrifice. That may be time spent reading the Bible and praying every day. It may be service to other Christians, feeding the poor, the homeless. Go ahead, Scott. So one of the great questions in my mind, these Greeks want to see Jesus. Jesus then gives <clears throat> the speech about dying and producing fruit. Were the, Jew, the Greek Jews there? For the Greeks, a part of this was Jesus. You know, were they invited in? And Jesus, when he talks about this, giving them an object lesson, or were they turned away? What do you think? I don't know. <clears throat> Because we, you know, we, we see with the little kids, Jesus says, hey, don't, don't stop them. Let them come to me. But about some Greeks that want to see Jesus, and then Jesus gives the speech that on the outset doesn't appear to have anything to do with Greeks. Okay. And, and I'll say, I understand what you're saying, that it, you know, the New Testament is not a literal minute-by-minute minute account of what happened. But look what happens in verse uh, 28. Then a voice came from heaven. And by the way, this is one of only, I think, three recorded times in the New Testament, correct me if I'm wrong, of where God speaks to Jesus in public. The first is his baptism. The second is the transfiguration on, on the mountain. The third is here. He says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Then what does it say? The crowd that was there heard it and heard it thunders. Others said, an angel had said it, and Jesus said, this voice was for whose benefit? For yours. I have to believe they were all there. That's just my interpretation. But I've heard it now. And I'm not even a, a Greek. At least the one thing you can take from it is Jesus didn't respond negatively. Yeah. So it would lead me to believe that their motivations for wanting to see Jesus were okay, mm -hmm. at least. 
I like this. They I weren't like self-centered. They weren't. But like see the magician <clears throat> kind of thing. They they seem to be possibly making an honest uh, attempt at seeing and meeting Jesus. Who I really like guy? this. Because what happens in the past when, when people have come to him, he lets them have it. <clears throat> so you brood of vipers is not a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> Generally not. Unless it's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Oh, that's okay. okay. As, as she was reading, or whoever's reading, yeah, she was reading <clears throat> verse 31, Now the judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. <clears throat> ah. I couldn't help but think there that if you were looking for a military military savior, then your mind would go to Rome, mm-hmm. right? The power. If you were looking for another kind of savior in which Jesus actually is, maybe your mindset would be different. So, <clears throat> I mean, I yeah, just like I some it. heard it as thunder and some heard it <clears throat> as as God's voice. Just like today, if I'm a if I stand on the liberal side mm-hmm. of things and I hear somebody say something. That can support my yeah. belief, where I, the direction I want my thoughts to go. If I'm on a conservative side, I can also find support for that. You, you actually, you're actually more right than you know. Maybe you, you already know this. That we just went over one of the key verses that a universalist will use in defense of everyone goes to heaven. <clears throat> this is, here's the issue, and that is um, that is verse 32. But I, when I am lifted up from earth. And the Greek there is subjunctive, meaning if or when I might be lifted up from the earth, then I will, future, like promise tense, like active tense, I will draw all men to myself. A universalist who says no one goes to hell permanently will use that verse for the same reason. At some level, anyone can interpret any of these things ten different ways. But I would ask you then, how do you find the answer? Wait and see. No, you look That's at one other, way to do it. Look at other parts of the Bible or look at other okay. things that Jesus has said. And I mean, there's one verse that says, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. I mean, yeah. okay, we're just going to take that and just yeah. live with that for the rest of our life. I mean, you have to look at the rest of the Bible and be like, okay. The sum total, there's a reason there's a lot, there's 39 books. Right, not just one verse. There's not just one verse. But who, if you didn't even have that, who could you go to and ask? <laughs> and again, it depends on interpretation. Maybe he'll tell you very plainly, and you'll ignore it. I don't know. Um, well, I mean, he is going to lift us all up. Yeah, we're all going to have to be judged. It's interesting so because I mean, it's all kind of true and it's all kind of not, right? And you he's, know? A, he's also going to draw us all to him. Doesn't mean we'll all come. That's right. That's right. There's no promise of salvation for all there. It's only helkuo, which is the Greek for to draw or pull towards. We're all drawn. Look, and and I did this in the predestination thing. Universalism is one of the black holes that I tend to not, you know, go to. One of those things is, yes, he has made himself available to all men. It is, it is a promise that anyone who believes can have salvation, but not all will, will get it. Let's, let's uh, move on before we go down that, that. We've got a little bit more here. <clears throat> Verses 37 to 50. Let's finish it out. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people stood up, still did not believe him. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? But the people couldn't believe, for as Isaiah also said, the Lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and have me heal them. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future and spoke of the Messiah's glory. Many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish, Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for the fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Jesus shouted to the crowds, if you, must, if you trust me, you are trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. I will not judge those who hear me but don't obey me, for I have come to save the world and not to judge it. 
but all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth. I have spoken, excuse me. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life, so I say whatever the Father tells me to say. Is hiding your faith true faith? What does God say about your life? Don't hide it under a, a basket. Where do you put it? On a lampstand. If God's glory, if God is glorified through public acknowledgement of his miracles, <clears throat> then how is your faith kind of demonstrated? How is the fruit of your faith demonstrated? I would say through public acknowledgement, right? There's a reason, you know, the New Testament commands that we publicly profess our faith and we're baptized publicly. There's a, there's a reason this isn't done in secret. And there's a reason that a lot of cults of the first and second century did do that because they weren't true. They weren't the true word of God and they did it in secret. They had all these secret, you know, secret knowledge and this and that. It's all public. Put it out there. It shows your faith, your heart, if you're willing to say, I believe in Jesus, <laughs> and, you're, and you're not afraid of what's going to happen next, that's where God says your faith is evident, your salvation is evident. One of the purpose of miracles is even called out right there in 1237. It's kind of like the antithesis. You say... <clears throat> Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Well, that kind of supports this idea of, well, what's the purpose of miracles? It's so we believe. And some did, some didn't, bless you. It's also kind of a, a don't be discouraged if your witness doesn't cause people to suddenly turn. These people didn't even turn to Jesus when he was doing miracles. You're going to give a witness to people who they're, they're not going to listen or they're not going to believe. Folks, Ezekiel had a hard life. If for those of you attending the service, Dan has been going through Ezekiel. Ezekiel had a rough life. He literally admitted, I every day stand on this street corner or lie on my side cooking my food with dung, telling people about the truth of, of God and, and the problems that our nation has endured and that we have to repent and return to him. And most people reject, they laughed at it. They said, you're good for entertainment, but we're not going to believe what you're saying. A lot of times, you have to think, <laughs> for all the people here, <laughs> it gets disheartening. I totally get it, but guess what? There's always going to be people that will be accepting of it. There will always be people. Look. And we're not getting... I mean, Paul, yeah. he got stoned. He got shipwrecked. He got lashed. I yeah. mean... We're telling people where our feelings are hurt yeah. when they don't believe, and we're not getting, I mean, that's the worst we get. Right. <laughs> you know? So I think we need to. In the West, the worst that can happen is you're shunned, right? Well, fine, shun me. I don't care. Right? Yeah. But then, you know, the it's powerful doing. because, yeah. like, all that would happen to the Pharisees is that they were shunned, and they were like, oh, I don't want to be shunned. Yeah. It's hard. Some well, people care so much about that. Well, the, back then, also, if you think about the culture of the time, it wasn't just that nobody would talk to you, but your livelihood, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. your yeah. place yeah. to live, everything that was involved was a big risk. That yep. What is your priority in life? The top, this is a list. There's only one one. There's only one two. There's only one three. Who you decide is the top priority in your life is going to be evident through your actions. Either it's God or it isn't. And I, you know, either it's God or it's something, and if it's something else, then it doesn't matter. It's either one or it's nothing. <laughs> you know? If you care more about what people think and your livelihood, and don't get me wrong, I totally get it. You'll get nervous. If I if I confess my faith at work and my boss is an atheist or something, I might lose my job. Yes, you might. <laughs> but guess what? Bless you. God has already promised it doesn't matter what happens in this world because the new kingdom, the new life you're about to, to have is going to be way better than anything you could possibly imagine. And this world is temporary. It's just a few years. You can take it. You can take it. Preaching.
<laughs> and I've said bless you. Like, many, I feel like a bishop. <laughs> bless you, bless you. All right, thank you. Any final comments today? Were you going to talk about the perfume? Do you want me to talk about that? I always write more than I talk about. I've been looking at it, and I was like, I want to know what you're going to say about that. So there are, you know, I, I can do this real quick. Um, so perfume held uh, in oils, aromatic oils held special place in antiquity. Um, it's thought that scents, the, the smells, were very powerful. They were magical. Um, they could drive away demons or attract demons. Um, in this case, there are three words in the Greek New Testament for perfume. Nardos, nard, which is what Martha uses here, which is one of the most expensive perfumes you could get from India. 300 denarii is a year's wages. A common worker would make one denarius a day. So this is, a, you know, how much do you make in a year? That's how much this costs. Often a dead body was prepared with, with oils and perfumes to keep, you know, demons away, to, um, to, to attract, you know, a positive spiritual forces, um, to respect the dead and that sort of thing. The other two words for perfume in the New Testament are muron and aroma. So that's where we get the word aroma from. Um, they were aphrodisiacs. They were sacred, so priests would use perfumes all the time because they were part of their sacred acts. Um, and uh, it's also important to remember that we didn't have um, dial soap and um, Pantene uh, shampoo back then, so most people didn't take baths or showers, so they would just put perfume or oil on their body to make them clean. So there's like a hundred different ways to interpret that. I just wanted to kind of call that out. <clears throat> um, and the hair thing is important too. Where did I say that? It was not appropriate for a woman to let her hair down in public. <laughs> in the presence of a man she was not married to. So the fact that Martha did this was shocking. Shocking, she was taking a risk by doing that. I think that's all. All right, thanks. All right, we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>